Well, I was reading an article on the Christian Post website this week, and it definitely caught my attention. It was so relevant to what we've, we've been studying for the past couple of weeks that I wanted to throw it in here. Uh, a popular actress just revealed that she speaks in tongues. Apparently, this is something she's been doing since she was eight years old, being raised in a Pentecostal church. And I wanted to read you part of this excerpt. She said this, quote, I have seen magical, crazy things happen. I've seen people healed. Even now in the church I go to during praise and worship, I, I could feel that I was maybe getting ready to speak in tongues and I'd have to shut it off because I don't know what that church would do if I started screaming out in tongues in the back, end quote. She went on to tell what speaking in tongues is like, quote, it feels like a lot of energy coming through the top of your head. I'm going to sound like such a lunatic. And then your whole body is filled with this electric current and you just start speaking. But you're not thinking because you have no idea what you're saying. Words are coming out of your mouth, but you can't control it. The idea is that it's a language that only God understands. It's a language that's spoken in heaven. It's called getting the Holy Ghost. End quote. This actress represents what many people believe today, that some of the miraculous gifts mentioned in the Bible are still in existence, that they're back. Although these gifts like prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing, have been seemingly absent from the church for 1,900 years, some think now that they have returned and Christians need to get in on them. At the heart of this renewed interest in the miraculous gifts, it's what's called getting the Holy Ghost or receiving the Spirit. It's all about receiving God's special power through the Holy Spirit and then being enabled to do miraculous things. When many non-charismatic Christians hear about such things today, they're not, not quite sure what to make of it. They've never experienced these things like an electric current rushing through their head or speaking in tongues. They're, they're on the outside looking in. They're left to wonder, is something wrong with them? Are they really less spiritual because they haven't received this, this baptism of the Spirit? Or is something wrong with these other Christians? Are they just being misled, carried away by emotions and experiences? Well, what is it? Who knows, most people think. I know the confusion surrounding these issues is rampant. Most have no idea where to even begin in evaluating the charismatic movement. Because of this, however, starting last week, we decided to take a break from our normal study in 1 Peter and, and talk about these issues. Normally, we're making our way through 1 Peter, and in doing so, we, we encountered this topic of the spiritual gifts, but not the miraculous gifts. So we thought it a worthwhile detour to spend some time talking about them. And that's what we've been doing. We started last week. We'll be finishing that discussion this morning. With this in mind, we, we've split our time up into three topics last week and today. Part one, we, we covered last week, what was a brief history of the charismatic movement, a brief history of the movement. I tend to use the word charismatic as a very broad term, but in reality, there are three different groups who still believe the miraculous gifts are in existence today. The first group are, are the Pentecostals. This group came on the scene in the early 1900s, when several people believed that they experienced the baptism of the Spirit and spoke in tongues. Pentecostalism became its own denomination of sorts, mostly because the other big denominations still rejected the miraculous gifts. But this changed in the 1950s and 60s when a second group emerged known as the Charismatics. 
The Charismatics, they're not hugely different from the Pentecostals. It's just that the Charismatic movement is marked by the penetration of the miraculous gifts into the mainline denominations. It's these beliefs about the gifts were finally penetrating into all the other denominations. That was the Charismatic movement. And finally, in the 80s came a third group known simply as the Third Wave. And the Third Wave movement, they wanted to distance themselves from some of the the errors they thought they saw or the excesses they saw in the charismatic and Pentecostal movements, but they still believed that the miraculous gifts were for today. So these are the three different groups who today still exist and still believe that the, the miraculous gifts mentioned in the Bible are for today. And we talked a lot more about them last week. If you want to learn more about these three groups, you can you know, download last week's sermon and get the full story. But just understanding... Who these Christians are and where they came from can really help us in evaluating them later. Now, the second topic in our study, which we also covered last week, was a brief theology of the charismatic movement, a brief theology. What do these people really believe in practice? And we found that it all starts and centers on this idea of the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Scripture, But it has always been associated with salvation. Charismatics, however, have reinterpreted this baptism to mean something a little bit different. The baptism is, in fact, a second experience after salvation. It's a second blessing where a person is filled with the Spirit and empowered by God to do great things, to do the miraculous, such as speaking in tongues, prophesying, healing, stuff like that. Now, we spent a lot more time talking about that last week as well. But this is really central to what separates charismatic from non-charismatic Christians, this understanding of the baptism, that experience, which lets them then use the miraculous gifts. So anyway, we started with a brief history of the charismatic movement, then secondly, a brief theology of the charismatic movement, and then all that's left is the third part in this little study that we're doing, which is this. Part three is ten errors of the charismatic movement and why the miraculous gifts are not for today. It's really a two-in-one, but I'll say it again. Ten errors of the charismatic movement and slash why the miraculous gifts are not for today. It's a final topic, which we started last week. We're going to finish this off right now today. Because, you know, although there are many Christians who do believe these miraculous gifts are legitimate, There are also many Christians who believe they are not, including us at this church. In fact, most of church history has believed the miraculous gifts to have passed away with the early church. It makes you wonder, though, why? Are there any good reasons for this? And on the flip side, are there any perhaps serious errors with the modern charismatic movements? And the answer to these questions is yes. Last time, we made it through just the first three of these errors. And before we move on to the final seven today, I just want to briefly summarize and do a brief recap here because the first three errors or the first three reasons why the miraculous gifts are not for today, they're they're so important and formidable that I just want you to know them well. So let me recap the first three again. I'll just tell them to you again. Number one, charismatics get experience wrong. Charismatics get experience wrong. Number two, charismatics get the purpose of the miraculous gifts wrong. 
They get the purpose of the miraculous gifts wrong. And then number three was charismatics get apostleship wrong. Charismatics get apostleship wrong. We covered these last week. Let me just give you the the quick recap. I'm going to cram them all into one little recap here. Let's start with this. God, he still works miracles. And God still heals people all the time. But throughout the Bible, only a few times has God enabled people to have the the power to to work miracles and signs and wonders. So it makes you wonder why. Why has God used only certain people, only at certain times, to work signs and wonders, to have the actual ability to work signs and wonders? The answer in Scripture is it's very clear, it's very consistent. The miraculous gifts were given by God as signs to authenticate his messengers. These gifts were given as signs by God to authenticate his messengers. They had other secondary purposes, but the primary purpose of miracles is always to attest to and validate God's spokesmen and to get you to listen to them because they're coming from God. They are representing God. And these gifts are never detached from that primary purpose. This was true of Moses, this was true of Jesus, this was true of the apostles. And the apostles, for example, they were commissioned by Jesus himself to be his representatives on earth after he left. They were his spokesmen. And with that commission came the ability to work signs and wonders, to perform these miraculous things. Why? To authenticate their message. God gave them these gifts. Some of them were revelatory, that the giving of new revelation, but some were authenticating to prove, to validate that they were coming from God and speaking for God. That was the purpose of these gifts, and there were no exceptions. But in time, God stopped giving new revelation. The apostles died off. The New Testament canon was closed, and there were no more direct messengers from God. Hence, There were no more need for the revelatory and authenticating gifts. With the passing of God's spokesmen, the apostles and prophets, so passed the miraculous gifts themselves. Charismatics get this wrong. They miss the purpose behind the spiritual gifts. In fact, they're not really concerned about the biblical purpose for the gifts. They're looking for an experience. They misunderstand the role of the apostles and their provisional gifting. The apostles and prophets, they were God's special spokesmen in that very special era. And they formed the foundation of the church, like we read. But once that foundation was laid, they they passed away. Charismatics admit this, that the apostles are gone, the apostolic era is over, the writing of scripture is finished. They, They admit all that. But they fail to see that with the passing of the apostles and prophets, so went their associated revelatory, and authenticating gifts. In the first century, you have to realize, the church, they didn't have the New Testament in their hands yet. It was being written, it was being revealed. And so they needed apostles and prophets to guide them, to give them the word. Prophecy and tongues were part of the church's daily life in that era. They were. But once the canon was complete, once the church's foundation was laid and they were established, As the leadership of the church transitioned from apostles and prophets to what? 
pastors and teachers. So the spiritual gifts transition from prophesying to teaching, from the revelatory and authenticating gifts to the speaking and the serving gifts. And that's the transition we see taking place in the New Testament itself. The bottom line is this. Charismatics fail to understand that things today are not exactly like they were in the early church. They, they go halfway. They believe that apostolic era is over, but they fail to realize that this means the associated gifts of the apostles and prophets are over as well. Again, cessationists, that's the name for people who don't believe the gifts are still around. Cessationists, they never deny God's power, his ability to heal, to work miracles today. Of course, God still works powerfully today through the Spirit. The question is this, though. Does God still gift individuals to have the ability to work signs and wonders themselves, just like he did with the apostles and prophets in the early church? And to that, we would answer no. We, we don't see that happening. So we'll leave it at that. That was, that was your little five-minute recap. If you want to take that further, you can go ahead and get last week's message as well. Because these first three points, they really are paramount to this discussion on, on the miraculous gifts. But for today, though, we want to pick up where we left off now and move things along and finish this third topic, 10 Errors of the Charismatic Movement and Why the Miraculous Gifts are Not for Today. Today we're going to make it through the final seven, hopefully just rounding off this teaching on the miraculous gifts. Now, I've got to say, this isn't your normal sermon. I like putting these disclaimers in here. It's going to be a very dense and information-heavy sermon, which I actually don't really like doing. But for time to time, it's necessary. we got these big topics. We just have to just get in and, and grapple with it. That's what we're going to do. But stay with me, stay focused, and hopefully you'll be equipped by our time together and at least exposed to these issues. So we're going to move on now with, with number four, the, the fourth error behind the charismatic movement. And the fourth reason that we see the miraculous gifts not being around today. Number four is this. Charismatics get the baptism of the Spirit wrong. They get the baptism of the Spirit wrong. We learned last week that the Pentecostal and the Charismatic movement, they're really centered around this idea that Christians should expect this second blessing after salvation called the baptism of the Spirit. This experience should fill them with God's power, and most believe it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. It's really central to the whole movement. So this is a big deal if they got this wrong. Now, they get this idea primarily from Acts chapter 2. We read that last week, where the disciples, they were, they were baptized by the Spirit. They were filled with power, and they began to speak in tongues. Charismatics think the disciples had this amazing experience, and we should too. The same thing should happen for us today. We should be baptized by the Spirit sometime after salvation, and then we should speak in tongues as well. They support this by the fact that three other times in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came upon people in a special way. Acts chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 19, there are three different episodes where the Holy Spirit comes on three different groups of people, and sometimes, not always, they speak in tongues afterward. So this is how... Charismatics interpret the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's some sort of a, a power encounter with the Holy Spirit 
resulting in believers being empowered by the Spirit and enabled to speak in tongues, prophesy, heal, all that stuff. So that's what they believe. This brings up a couple of important questions, though. Number one, what is the true significance of the Holy Spirit's activity in the book of Acts? What's he really doing in Acts, the Holy Spirit? That's question one. Question two is, should we expect the same thing to happen today? Uh, Let's just start with question one. What is the true significance of the Holy Spirit's activity in Acts? What is the Spirit really doing in Acts? What's God teaching us there? Well, we already learned charismatics. They answer this question in a very simple way. The Holy Spirit was simply empowering believers to do amazing things. The baptism of the Spirit is an experience of power encounter with God. And when you receive that power, you can do the miraculous. And they believe that the events of Pentecost should be repeated today. And side note, if you don't know what Pentecost is, it's just what we talk about when we're referring to Acts chapter 2 and the events of that chapter where the Spirit came on the disciples that first time. That's what we mean by Pentecost. But here's the thing. This interpretation of the Spirit's activity and the event of Pentecost are wrong. Their interpretation is wrong, and and let me explain. You have to realize that the event of Pentecost was not just some experience. It was way more than that. It was completely tied into the new covenant salvation work of Christ. Pentecost It's at the very heart of Christ's finished work. Think about this. The order of Christ's work, it goes like this. Life, death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost, the sending of the Spirit. It's part of his finished work. The Spirit's coming. It's not some sort of secondary experience. It's part and parcel with Christ's finished work. Now think about this. If Pentecost never happened, if the Spirit never came like Jesus promised. Yes, Christ would have finished his atoning work on the cross, but that work would never be applied because the Spirit is the one who does that. No one can get saved without the Holy Spirit affecting the atonement in their lives. So if the Spirit never came like Christ promised, there's no new covenant salvation. There's none. Without Pentecost... There is no resurrection life in the Spirit, which means sinners are still dead in their trespasses and sins. So the coming of the Spirit that we see in Acts chapter 2, it signifies the beginning of the new covenant salvation, just like God promised. Back in Ezekiel 36, God is finally pouring out His Spirit like He promised with this new covenant salvation. Pentecost then, it's not an experience to be repeated over and over. It's a once-for-all event, part of God's redemptive plan. It's no more repeatable than Christ's death on the cross. You may think, if that's true, though, what about those three other times in the book of Acts where the Spirit came upon people and you know, sometimes they spoke in tongues? What's up with that? Well, the answer is crystal clear in Acts if you just, just look and read. If you want, you can turn to Acts chapter 1, and I'll show you a couple verses. You can keep your finger there. We're going between back and forth between Acts and 1 Corinthians throughout the this morning. Acts chapter 1, I'll just show you a quick verse here. Acts chapter 1, of course, takes place right before Acts chapter 2. 
And Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. It's the coming of the Spirit. Right before this, however, Christ, he's already resurrected. He spent 40 days with the disciples instructing them, and he gives them some final instructions right before his ascension. And he promises the Spirit will come upon them. Chapter 1, verse 5, he mentions you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And down in verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that's what happens, that the Spirit comes, they receive power. But why? What was the purpose of this event? He says, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, these regions are significant. Keep these in mind. Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. Three different regions, and they're all progressively further away from Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's his mission. He wants them to be his witnesses just going out. Now, in the book of Acts, Luke, who's writing, shows how God is expanding his witness and his testimony to all the ends of the earth through the apostles and through the Holy Spirit. And he's going to show this. And this is the purpose, as you'll see yourself, this is the purpose behind these other outpourings of the Spirit in the book of Acts. So stay with me. Follow along. First, you have Acts chapter 2. And what happens? As we already know, the Spirit was poured out on all those Jews marking the beginning of the new covenant salvation. At first, though, the church was strictly Jewish. You know that, right? It started with all Jews. But it wasn't to be that way for long. Then comes Acts chapter 8. And at the preaching of Philip, a bunch of Samaritans get converted, and they believe in Jesus. And what were they supposed to make of that? If you remember, the Jews hated the Samaritans, and they always kept them out. They were not welcome. But now, these Samaritans were believing in Jesus. So what does that mean? Does that mean the Samaritans should be accepted into the church? Well, John and Peter go down, and when they visit the Samaritans, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon these Samaritans, and they did not speak in tongues, by the way, afterwards, but the Holy Spirit came upon them. And what did this signify? How did the apostles interpret this event? Did they say, oh, it's just an experience. These guys are having a really great experience with the Spirit. No. They understood that God was indicating by sending the Spirit on this special occasion that the once hated Samaritans were now to be accepted into the body of Christ. God was showing through the sending of the Spirit that this group of people, the Samaritans, were now welcome into the church. They were a part of the church. This, in fact, is this is the explicit purpose of the baptism of the Spirit in Scripture. God uses the baptism of the Spirit to signify one's entrance into the church. Just listen along. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. This verse By the way, it's a real problem for charismatics. Because, you know, whatever this baptism is, or whatever it is, call what you want, two things are very clear from this passage. It's for all believers, and it happens at the moment of salvation, which is in direct contradiction to what they say. It's only for some, and it happens afterwards. But no, 
The baptism of the Spirit happens at salvation, and God uses it to place you into the body of Christ. It makes you a member of the body. And with these Samaritans, he was signifying that in a special way, showing this Jewish church, hey, the doors are open. They are accepted in. There's more. Acts chapter 10. What happens then? Well, now at the preaching of Peter, a bunch of Gentiles get converted. Now we've got some Gentiles believing in Jesus. What were they supposed to make of that? I mean, the Jews hated the Gentiles even more than the Samaritans, and they kept them out of their assembly no matter what. But now they're believing in Jesus. So should these Gentiles be accepted into this new thing called the church? Well, what happens? Right at the moment that they're converted by Peter's preaching, not afterwards, by the way, right when they're converted, they receive the Spirit. And what does this signify again? How does Peter interpret this event himself? Just an experience? No. He understands God was making it clear by baptizing them in the Spirit that they were being accepted into the church. They were part of Christ's body now. Even the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles were accepted, and God was showing it through the Spirit. This happens one last time in Acts chapter 19. Paul, he's at Ephesus. He runs into some disciples of John the Baptist. These guys were believers, but get this, they had never heard of Jesus. They didn't know who Jesus was or the Spirit. So Peter, or rather Paul preaches, they get converted, and the Spirit comes upon them. Signifying what? Signifying the entrance of old covenant believers into the new covenant. That's who these guys were. They were believers, but they didn't know about Christ. And God was showing through them that now there's only one way in, and it's through Christ and the new covenant. And God accepted the men with the baptism of the Spirit. So the book of Acts, just like we said in chapter 1, verse 8, is showing that God was really expanding his church from Judea, the Jews, to Samaria, the Samaritans, to the remotest parts of the earth, the Gentiles and beyond. And that's the pattern of Acts. This phenomena is never repeated again, by the way, of people being visibly baptized and having phenomena. But to sum it up, this whole idea of the baptism of the Spirit in Acts being some sort of special blessing or power encounter with the Spirit, it's just way off. Pentecostals, they don't make too much of Pentecost, they make too little of Pentecost. They reduce it to some sort of power encounter with the Holy Ghost that enables them to do great things, but... What God was really doing with the Spirit in Acts is so much more than that. So much more significant than just a a little experience. God was beginning his new covenant program. And what happened at Pentecost was the capstone of Christ's atoning work. It cannot nor should not be repeated today. So this is number four. It was a big one. But nonetheless, charismatics get the baptism of the Spirit wrong. And if you get that wrong, that, that's at the heart of these movements. It says a lot. They get the baptism of the Spirit wrong. Thankfully, remember that third group, the third wave group? They've come to understand this. They have rejected these false teachings about the baptism of the Spirit, which is good. I, I applaud them for that. We're thankful for that piece of agreement. Hopefully they can avoid some of these other errors as well. Number four, charismatics get baptism of the Spirit wrong. Move on now to number five. The fifth error, or the fifth reason we don't believe that gifts are for today, the miraculous gifts. Number five, charismatics get acts wrong. The book of Acts. Charismatic get acts wrong. 
Remember earlier I posed two questions. You read through the book of Acts, it makes you wonder. Number one, what is the significance of the Holy Spirit's activity in Acts? Number two, should we expect these same events to happen today? Well, we already answered the first question. The answer was a through Pentecost, uh, not repeatable. The second question is this. Should we expect these same events to happen today? Now, let's tackle the second question out. And the answer is no. When it comes to the events of Pentecost and these other three outpourings of the Spirit, we've already seen they were not repeatable. They're not normative. They were never meant to be understood as being a part of the normal life of the church. They were isolated instances with specific groups, and they were never repeated. didn't happen to Paul. didn't happen to Peter's audience of Jews when they were converted, and it was never mentioned again. But charismatic get this wrong in part because they make the book of Acts normative for the church. And what that means is they believe everything we see happening in Acts should still be happening today. I mean, why wouldn't it? But they get the book of Acts wrong. The book of Acts is not an epistle like Romans. It's historical narrative. It's the record of the early church and its transition into the new covenant. We should, in fact, not expect everything to be the same today because we're no longer in that transitional apostolic period. We we don't live in that time anymore, and that time has changed. Even they admit that. But more than that, charismatics fail to see the difference between descriptive and prescriptive parts of the Bible. Ever heard of that before? Acts is descriptive, meaning it's describing. It's telling us what happened without necessarily being prescriptive, prescribing, telling us what to do, telling us how we should live now. Charismatics want the book of Acts to be normative for today. They have to believe that. But that's not how Acts is to be interpreted, nor do they even do this consistently. I mean, think about this. Sure, they, they want to keep the gift of tongues from Acts. But then why don't Charismatics sell all their possessions and give them to the church? Because that's what several Christians were doing in the book of Acts. So why don't they do that today? Or what about this? Why don't Charismatics choose their leaders by drawing straws? Because that's how the disciples picked the replacement of Judas. They, they drew straws. Why don't they do that today? You see, they, they pick and choose. There's a lot of things in Acts that are like, well, no, that's not for today. Where do they get that? The point is, it's inconsistent, and it's, it's not even how Acts is to be interpreted in the first place. Plain and simple, they just get the whole book of Acts wrong. Acts was not written like an epistle to be a guide for Christian living in the church. It's historical narrative telling us about the apostolic era. And to derive your practice today from it is inconsistent and flawed if there's no other New Testament support. And for them, there is none. Number five, charismatics get the book of Acts wrong. Number six, charismatics get 1 Corinthians wrong. Charismatics get 1 Corinthians wrong. There's actually a lot here that I cut out for the sake of time. There's nowhere we would make it through. But you read chapters 12 through 14, and there's so many practices of the gifts that even if they did exist, they're just way off. Now, I'm going to leave that to you for further study. But go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one little passage that we'll make a brief mention of because it's also quite large to handle. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a very interesting passage here in 1 Corinthians 13 that... 
it explicitly says that the revelatory gifts will cease. They're going to end. And everyone believes that, by the way. The question is, though, is when? That's the real kicker, and, and that's where the disagreement rests. But let me just show you the passage. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12. Paul says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. That's the key word right there, the the perfect. Whenever that comes, whatever that is, the partial will be done away. These gifts will end. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now, let me just say, this passage is huge and it's very complex To deal with it sufficiently, we take a sermon, a whole sermon, and I don't want to do that, at least not now. I will make a few points, though. First, some believe this passage is teaching that the miraculous gifts will end when Christ returns. They believe verse 12 speaks of the second coming, and then they read this conclusion back into verses 8 through 10, and they find the perfect there in verse 10 being the return of Christ. Remember we said, verse 10, as Paul says, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. They see the, the word the perfect referring to the return of Christ. And so we can expect prophecy, tongues, stuff like that, to continue until the return of Christ. That's how they go. Now, I do believe verse 12 speaks of that glorification time, the return of Christ. But I would challenge reading that conclusion back into verses 8 through 10. Why is that? It's because that word for perfect in verse 10, the word is just teleos in the Greek, teleos. It can mean several things. Most times it means mature. So you have to make a decision. Does this word mean mature or perfect? And that's your interpretive challenge. And a very strong case can be made that it should indeed be translated as mature. When the mature comes, the partial will be done away, or the immature. The word partial, it's the antonym for this word. They're opposites. But look at this. How does Paul illustrate this concept? He says, hey, when the perfect comes or or when the mature comes, the partial will be done away. How does he illustrate this? Verse 11 is his illustration. He says, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. That's not an illustration of perfection. That's an illustration of maturity. He says, when I came to maturity, I did away with immature things. Additionally, there's a parallel passage in Ephesians 4. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. He uses all these same words. And his point is clear there that the gifts were given for the maturity of the church. So, look, I'm not going to take this much further because it would take a long time. But I'll say this. A strong case can be made that some of the gifts associated with the apostles and prophets were for the foundation of the church, just like Ephesians says. And that when the church graduated from infancy and reached a basic maturity, these gifts passed away. It's true. Both sides of the deal here use this passage in 1 Corinthians to argue their case. Everyone's using this passage for their case. 
And there's more going on here than we have time for. There's a lot in here. But for now, I'll just mention the cessationist case does not live or die on this passage. But to take it any further, I'll leave that for a future study. I really want to get to these last ones, though, with our time here. Number seven, charismatics get prophecy wrong. Number seven, charismatics get prophecy wrong. Here we're going to move into the the three gifts they use the most and show you even in their specific usage, there's a lot of serious problems. Prophecy, healing, tongues. We'll cover these one by one right now. Number seven, they get prophecy wrong. There are several troubling problems with the charismatic view of modern prophecy. Some believe that God is truly speaking through them. They receive inspired utterances from God, just like the apostles and prophets did. But if this is the case, here's the problem. Are such prophecies authoritative? Meaning this, do these revelations come with the same authority as God's word in the Bible? Are they that authoritative or not? That's the question. And this is a huge dilemma for charismatics, and they know this. They want to say yes, but they understand if they say yes, there, there's some real problems. If the answer is yes, if these words that they're receiving, they're just as authoritative as scripture, then there's an unavoidable conclusion. Why don't we write them down? Why don't we add them to scripture? Why don't we keep writing? I, I want ongoing authoritative revelation from God. I, I want to know more Bible. I want more revelation. Who, who doesn't? Of course, charismatics, they never go that far. They understand that they can't go quite that far. But that conclusion is unavoidable. If God is still speaking authoritative, inspired revelation on par with Scripture, then they are, in in effect, adding to Scripture. Now, they don't go that way because they know that that's kind of a dead end. So most charismatics, they understand the dilemma, so they concede that prophecy today, it's it's different. It's not quite like what it was in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament prophets. You see, in the Bible, prophecy was always infallible, meaning it never had any error in it. It's infallible, and it was authoritative, came with, God, came with God's authority. Today, though, it's, it's different, is what they say. Today, prophecy is fallible. It can be filled with errors. Today, prophecy can be wrong. Prophecy today is not binding, and it's not authoritative. You may say, well, what is it? Well, they say it's a potentially mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. That's how they define prophecy now. But even this, even their new understanding of prophecy is just riddled with with fatal flaws. First, how does a person distinguish between their own thoughts and God's thoughts? They have no answer because there is none. It's entirely subjective. Did that thought come from me and my brain or God? There's no way of knowing. And they understand it's subjective. Further, when you compare this idea of prophecy with the Bible, it's not even close. It doesn't resemble anything we see in the Bible. This type of fallible, non-authoritative prophecy, it's just totally foreign to Scripture. Never in the Bible do we see someone receiving a message from God only left to wonder if God was speaking to them. They know without question that God is speaking, but today charismatics are, are scratching their heads Somewhat like, is this coming from me or from God? They're not quite sure. In the Bible, a person didn't get a mistakable feeling that God was speaking to them. It was unmistakable. God was speaking, and there was no way to get it wrong. When someone prophesied, it didn't come in the form of a feeling. 
It was the word of God spoken to them. Or as Peter himself says in 1 Peter 4.11, which we studied, they were speaking the very what? The very utterances of God. Biblical prophecy, it's unmistakable. Also, there's no concept of fallible prophecy in the Bible. In the Old Testament, if you got it wrong, if you prophesied with error, you were to be executed. The death penalty was prescribed. Prophets always spoke with God's authority. They were vehicles for God's revelation. God enabled them to have the audacity to say something like this, Thus says the Lord. And that's, that's audacious unless God is really speaking through you. But there's no mistake about it. And in the New Testament, there's no change. The New Testament apostles and prophets, they speak with the same authority, and there's no change seen whatsoever in their authority behind their prophecies. Think about this. One cessationist author gives an example. Picture a person. They stand up in church, and they say, I have a prophecy. God has spoken to me. And he's told me that an earthquake is coming. It's going to level this city. So we need to leave, and the church needs to buy earthquake insurance before we go. Now, how does the church handle that prophecy? How do they they deal with it? According to this charismatic view of prophecy, at best, this person has an impure message, and it might, in fact, contain some errors. It might just be wrong. So the people are left to evaluate this prophecy based on what? On nothing, on, on just subjective means. They don't really know whether this came from God or not. They have to figure it out. This is so opposite prophecy in the Bible. In Scripture, if a prophet warned, you listen. End of story. Because if you don't listen to them, you're not listening to God. But just ask, you know, what is the value of such prophecy? What's the value? It has no authority. It comes with no certainty. It can be wrong. It could even lead you to make wrong decisions. Does that sound like, you know, thus says the Lord to you? Also, they claim that, you know, prophecy today, since it can contain error, it can be wrong, you still have to evaluate it by Scripture. You still have to evaluate it by Scripture. But how worthless is that? Why do I need some fallible, non-authoritative word from man to tell me what I can already find in the Bible? See, that's the whole point of the sufficiency in Scripture. We don't need anything else. I don't need any more revelation because of the sufficiency of Scripture. Of course, though, that's not how it works. Today, the prophecies they reveal are always these very subjective, non-verifiable feelings, things you couldn't tell if they were right or wrong. Like, God told me I need to go talk to that person. Of course, that can't be verified by Scripture. Scripture doesn't talk about that. And so, how do you know? How do you know that's coming from God? You have no way of knowing. How do you know it's not just your flesh or your brain? There's no way of knowing. It's just subjective. The question is this. Is it possible for God to speak in a non-authoritative way? The answer is no. He's either speaking or not. And this modern charismatic understanding of prophecy is just totally foreign to prophecy in Scripture. And in addition to that, it's worthless. Since it comes with without God's authority and with error, you call it what you want. Call it preaching. That's what they do. It's like, it's like preaching. Go ahead, call it preaching. But what you can't call it is the New Testament gift of prophecy because it's not. It doesn't resemble the New Testament gift of prophecy. Charismatics get prophecy wrong. Number eight. Number eight, charismatics get healing wrong. Let's cover healing now. 
Again, here's the problem. Charismatics claim that they have the spiritual gift of healing, but these supposed healings look nothing like they do in Scripture. Let's start with the Bible. What is healing like in the Bible? Jesus, the apostles, stuff like that. Healing in the Bible was immediate, full, abundant, and undeniable. Even Christ's enemies walked away amazed. They, they recognized his healings like, well, that just happened. They, they admitted it. They never once denied his healings. They did try and attribute them to Satan, but they were so unmistakable they, they had to admit it. Furthermore, Christ's healings were nationwide. They were widespread. Everybody knew about them. Soon he just walked into a town. What did they do? They just brought all their sick people because they knew this guy, he can do it. It was unmistakable. The same goes with the apostles. They healed people immediately, powerfully, undeniably. These healings came with great magnitude. Blind people regained their sight. Deaf could hear. Lame people had limbs regrown. Lepers cleansed. Dead raised. I mean, that, that's crazy. But not so for charismatics today. The gift today, it's really nothing like it was in the New Testament. Healings are not immediate. They're not full. They're not abundant. They're not undeniable. No one's being healed from AIDS. Blind do not see. Dead are not raised. All healings today are of these very subjective minor ailments, like, like a backache, a tooth depression, stomach pain, these very minor subjective things. Where is the undeniable, powerful, supreme healing that even your enemies have to admit? Or where is the healer walking into a hospital and just clearing it out? Charismatics, of course, they have an excuse. They say, well, you know, we can't heal people if, if that person doesn't have faith. They have to have faith for me to heal. But unfortunately, that's bogus. In Scripture, several times, Jesus and the apostles healed unbelievers. For example, the leper in Matthew 8, the lame man in John 5, the ten lepers in Luke 17. Then there was Lazarus. He was dead during his healing, by the way. Also, you have Acts 28. Paul, he crash lands on an island. He's on the way to Rome. He's a prisoner. They crash land on an island. The natives of the island come to revere Paul. Paul then heals a, a prominent man on the island. And so the natives, what do they do? They bring all their sick people to Paul. What does Paul do? He cleans them out. He cleans out the whole island. And they were unbelievers. Maybe afterwards, it's not written, but they became believers. But at that point, they were unbelievers. And he just cleans them out. And nothing like that happens today. To us, this makes perfect sense because the purpose of the gift of healing was never to heal people. Do you understand that? The purpose of the gift of healing was never to heal people. Yeah, it's good. It's secondary, but it's never its purpose. Everyone who got healed eventually later in life got sick again and died. God was not just trying to extend someone's life or make things a little bit easier for them for a couple days. The primary purpose was always to authenticate the messengers coming from God. I've already talked about that. Charismatics get that wrong. But even in the New Testament, we see this change taking place. As the need for the sign gift of healing decreased, so did the ability to heal. Paul was ill, but he did not heal himself. Several times he was beaten, bloodied, bruised, but he didn't heal himself. He relied on Luke, his doctor friend. Epaphroditus was ill, but not healed by Paul, Philippians 2. Tropimus was ill, but not healed by Paul, 2 Timothy 4. And Timothy, Timothy, if you remember, he just had a stomach ache. 
It's like, not a big deal. Paul, I mean, just, just heal him, Paul. That's easy. But Paul did not heal him. Instead, Paul prescribed for him some ancient medicine in the form of wine with his water. This is because even in the New Testament, we see the sign and wonder gifts diminish with their diminishing purpose, and they were never meant to just heal people. They were meant to be a sign, and when that sign wasn't needed, there, there was no healing. The point, again, is that modern, the modern charismatic idea of healing is just foreign to the Bible. Whatever it is, it's not the spiritual gift of healing. They may say, well, you know, God still heals in response to prayer, and they're right. That's true, but that's it. Healing today in charismatic circles is nothing like in the New Testament. Therefore, it is to be rejected as something less than the spiritual gift. And we're almost done. Number nine, charismatics get tongues wrong. We've got to talk about this one before we finish. Charismatics get tongues wrong. This issue of tongues, it's huge. We could spend many sermons on it. For the sake of time, I just want to give you the number one problem with the modern tongues movement. Just the biggest problem, number one. Very simply this. In every New Testament instance of tongues, it's always a real human language. Every time. There's no exceptions. Today, it's just the opposite. Every time someone speaks in tongues, it's never a human language. It's always this kind of gibberish language that you don't really know what they're saying. Once again, we see this disparity between the New Testament gift and what we see today. You see that pattern? And what does that tell you? Even charismatics admit that in Acts chapter 2, when the disciples spoke in tongues, it was, it's pretty undeniable. It was a real human language. Several human languages, that's pretty clear. They admit that. But this continues all throughout the New Testament. The words used, glossolia, dialectos, they're used every time of real human languages or dialects. Every time. These words are never used for ecstatic utterances, which existed back then in the pagan realm. If Paul wanted to describe tongues as being these ecstatic utterances, this kind of gibberish language, he could have. He had the vocab, but he didn't. He described them as real languages every time. There's just not a single example of this gibberish talk that we see today. Now, charismatics have a quick answer. They say, well, what about the tongues of angels? 1 Corinthians 13.1. Well, what about that? We're just speaking the, the, the language of angels. A few things. First, every time an angel speaks in the Bible, what language is he speaking? A human language. Every single time. But forget that. Let's just go ahead and grant the argument. Let's just pretend that there's a real heavenly language out there that we don't know. It's just something we just don't know. Pretend it's real. If that's true, well then today, still, we should expect most people to be speaking in human tongues because anyway, the majority of tongues are going to be in human languages. Sure, a few people may be speaking in the heavenly tongues, but shouldn't we see a bunch of other people speaking in the earthly tongues as well? You see, this view doesn't answer why no one today speaks in real languages, but but even forget that. Think about this. If tongues is, of angels is a real language, it should operate like a real language. And here's what I mean. Languages are very rational and logical. Languages have things like subjects, verbs, objects, syntax, word order, alphabets, stuff like that. That's how languages work. What we hear today, though, it's the complete opposite. It's not a language. There's no order. If there really is some heavenly language, let's start writing it down. Let's compile a grammar. Let's make the alphabet. What's the heavenly language word for water? Charismatics can't answer any of these questions. 
Because whatever they're speaking, it's no language. And that the point is this. That's totally foreign to tongues in the Bible. That's the point. Just do this. Get someone to speak in tongues. Record it. Then give it to ten different people who supposedly can interpret tongues and tell them to interpret it. And you'll get ten different interpretations every single time. Why? Because it's false. If God is truly communicating revelation through tongues, and he was, tongues is revelatory, then it would come with the same interpretation every single time. God is not a God of confusion, but of order and peace. And he's not going to give a mistakable tongue or a revelation. This is a, a fatal flaw for the modern tongues movement. To make matters worse, some charismatics teach that every Christian must speak in tongues, but that's just a flat-out contradiction with 1 Corinthians 12, 30, where Paul says, you know, I wish you all would, but not all will. It's very clear. Not every one of you will speak in tongues. It's just another false claim in the movement. There's more, but this is the number one problem I think should suffice for now. What we see today... It's just simply not the New Testament gift of tongues. It's deceived people being carried away by their own flesh in a quest for an experience. Now here, let's finish it off. Number 10. Charismatics get church history wrong. Come to the end. Number 10. Charismatics get church history wrong. We're out of time, but I think we're going to make it through. I'll just state the simple truth. From the early church through the Middle Ages, to the Reformation, to the Great Awakenings, to today, the church throughout history has rejected the continuation of the miraculous gifts. Like I said, up until 1901, it's been unanimously rejected. The early church proves this as well. There is a group called the Montanists that took place one to two generations after the apostles, second century A.D. And these Montanists claimed to have these ecstatic utterances of the Spirit, kind of like tongues today. They claimed a prophecy, but in a non-authoritative way. How did the church react to this group called the Montanists? They unanimously rejected them as heretics, claiming, look, authoritative is, is uh, or rather, prophecy is authoritative. They shot this whole movement down early on, which has striking parallels to the charismatic church today. But there are many more examples of that. In short, though, church history, it's, it's not our test of truth. So it's not a huge deal. Church history, we don't take that much from it. We take scripture. But the fact that up until 1900, when a group of people were driven by a quest for an experience, the vast majority of Christians have rejected the miraculous gifts, it's telling. Church history, it doesn't prove anything, but to us, at least, it's confirming that the gifts did end after the early church was founded. But that'll do it for now. This has been a whirlwind study. I'm glad you made it through. You're all still... You can breathe, you're alive. Now, look, I know you won't remember everything we talked about, but just understand that there are several serious issues and problems with the modern charismatic movements. You have good reason not to feel like a second-rate Christian because someone says you haven't received the special baptism. Don't listen to that. And you have good reason to hold into suspicion those making these claims today of the miraculous gifts. I hope that is one takeaway. You, you learn the important lesson overall that scripture trumps experience. That's been a theme all throughout that we've seen. Experience is good. Your, your, your worship should never be divorced from genuine emotion and experience. Never. But experiences can be wrong. They can be deceiving. And they don't always come from God. 
They can come from your flesh. And worst case, they can come from Satan and demons. So you need to be discerning. Test all things. How do you do that? Through scripture. And if you just learn that lesson, you're good to go. Just be discerning. Test all things through scripture. And you'll end up well. At the same time, I want to end on a positive note again like last week. Though we at this church, you know, and many others, disagree with charismatics for their beliefs, we just find them misled or misguided. Remember that for those who, who truly believe the same gospel and they love the same Christ, that we're still one. At the end of the day, for those who know the gospel, we're, we're on the same team. And so do not, believe, do not view other true believers who are charismatics with contempt. You shouldn't. All of us are susceptible to getting things wrong in one area or another because we're all sinners and we all rely on God's grace anyway for all things. So, you know, if you think, you know, I've got the truth, why is that God's grace? So you have no reason to boast. Therefore, just be patient, humble, gracious with with any believer who disagrees with you on, on any number of things including those of our our charismatic brethren. I'll end with this. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, right before talking about spiritual gifts, he said this. 4, 1 through 3. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I say amen to that. Though we may have disagreements with others, we love them, we are, want to pursue that unity of the Spirit together, and uh, we want to stand for the truth, but still have love behind that as well. May that be true for us always. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Although it was an intense study of your word, that's partly what your word is there for, and we thank you because your word is clear. Lord, we want to get it right. We want to be humble because we can be wrong and we're sinners. We can be clouded by our own sin or experiences as well. So we pray just for your grace upon us in getting these things right and for your grace upon others for getting things right as well. We need your grace and your spirit truly working within us. So just, Lord, be patient with us in our quest for the truth and others as well. And may we reflect that same patience and love toward others that you have for us. Thank you for your word, and thank you for the gift of the Spirit truly given to all at salvation. I pray we may not learn what we studied beforehand, that if you're a believer, you have the Spirit, and you have a spiritual gift, and you need to serve. I pray everyone here will just focus on getting busy with their spiritual gift, serving one another with love and with uh, gratitude to you in all things. You've given us all things, Lord. We want to return all things to you in praise and service. Help us to do that. We love you and we pray this in your name. Amen.